Good morning. If you have your Bibles, be turning to Mark chapter 11. And as we're turning there, it is uh, the time of year that we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. And uh, so it's appropriate that over the next couple of weeks, we would take a break from our journey through the Thessalonian epistles and would focus on this Easter story. It is central to who we are as believers that Christ died for our sins and rose from the grave victorious, proving that death could not hold him. And as Paul makes abundantly clear in his argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if it cannot hold him, it will not hold us if we are in him. And so we have reason to celebrate today. And as I mentioned a moment ago, today begins Holy Week. And we talk about what Christ did in this final week because it's important. It tells us much about who he is and what he came to accomplish in his perfect life and atoning death. But the week begins with this triumphal or triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and it leads to the cross. It culminates in his death, but ultimately in his resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. And I'm already eagerly awaiting our time next Sunday morning as we celebrate Easter. This Jesus, who we've read in the Gospels, has steadfastly turned his face toward Jerusalem, has finally arrived. He's continued to work miracles and be spoken of everywhere he travels. And now he's coming to this great capital city. And there's more of a buzz than there's ever been around him as we read in John's Gospel that he has just raised Lazarus from the dead. You talk about a powerful testimonial to the power of Christ, there it is. In fact, John's gospel makes clear that there are implications to that miracle. That so many had heard of that miracle and were impressed by that miracle that the the leaders began to think we've got to get rid of him. And we've got to get rid of Lazarus too. We've got to get rid of the evidence and the miracle worker himself. And so that's the background of what's been going on in the days preceding Christ's entry here. Now, Mark tells of another miracle of a blind man named Bartimaeus who sat by the road and who Jesus healed of his blindness. That's an important story as you lead into what Jesus will accomplish in Jerusalem where you see those who are repeatedly blind but will not see. My friends, as Christ comes to Jerusalem, how will he be received? We know the leaders are openly hostile to him. The crowds have followed him. They've followed him in the past, haven't they? Over and over again we've seen that they have followed him and yet they never stay for long. And we've seen that Christ does not give himself over to the large crowds because he knows what's in their heart. But what will happen now that he's entering Jerusalem? Let's read what Mark tells us. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, 
So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat upon it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now this is a memorable and short text. It almost seems as if Mark is underplaying the narrative here. This spectacular event, this amazing event in, in history, the fulfillment of prophecy, and yet it seems, his description seems almost understated. As we look at it this morning, I want us to see three points. First of all, a historic arrival. Second of all, a different Jesus. And third, a serious warning. I pray that we'll see these points as we begin to look at the text. Beginning with our first point, a historic arrival, as we read the text, we see a historic arrival, don't we? Make no mistake about it, this is an important moment, prophetic and messianic, no doubt about it. It's prophetic in the sense that it fulfills earlier prophecy. Here is the one who rides a donkey's colt in fulfillment of the direct prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's interesting because as you read from the Babylonian Talmud, and I read a little portion of it this week uh, that I was referred to in studying this, And there was much discussion at the time amongst the rabbis about this very prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. It's important to know that because that refutes the scholars who argue that it might not have been known to the people of Jesus' day. In other words, they say when they saw him riding this donkey's colt, they might not have put two and two together and recognized that this was a fulfilled prophecy from Zechariah. And yet the writings of the time dispute that greatly. In the Babylonian Talmud, which was a little earlier, there was discussion about how to explain the Messiah, the conquering, glorious Messiah, entering Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. And they had this theory that there were two options. The Son of Man walking on the clouds. And he would do that if he found Israel to be obedient. But if they found the Messiah coming in on a donkey's colt, it would mean that he found them disobedient. Now, I don't think we want to agree with that interpretation at all of the two options for Christ's coming. But it is interesting, by their own words, they would be saying that the fulfillment of this prophecy found them disobedient. And I believe that's an important thing to think about when you think about where Mark is going in the days ahead as he follows this Holy Week. We know that Christ rode that donkey's colt because it fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah. But even that prophecy stems and is rooted in a a deeper prophecy, much, much earlier, found even in the Torah, the 
the book of Genesis. If you would turn there with me to the 49th chapter, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. As Jacob is nearing the end of his earthly pilgrimage, he gathers together his sons, his children, the heirs, the heads of the tribes of Israel, and he prophesies unto them. Now Jesus is of the line of Judah. I want you to hear the prophecy made to Judah. Starting in verse 8, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from beneath his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Brothers and sisters, you can see this this thread, if you will, through the prophecies of the Old Testament that describe the coming of this Messiah, this anointed one, this chosen one. He would be the Lion of Judah. But notice this reference in Genesis and again in Zechariah to this donkey's colt. My friends, this was a promise that was trusted in, believed in. Now there are Many scholars today that just don't believe that the people would have understood all this, but I think we can see again and again that doesn't make sense. They rushed around Jesus. When the donkey's colt was brought forth, the disciples covered the colt with their own clothes, and Jesus rode upon him, but the people came and threw their garments at the, at the feet of the donkey. They covered the ground with them. How in the world could you think this is not significant? There's only a few times that we read of such behavior. When Yehu is crowned, there's this, and we read about it in the extra-biblical account of the Maccabees. When they defeated Antiochus Epiphanes, the people celebrated their arrival and threw their clothes down onto the roads in a sign of respect and honor. My friends... It's interesting because it isn't just these prophecies that are thought of here. But they recognized that whoever this Messiah would be, he would surely be the son of Israel's greatest king, King David. You see that in the crowd's behavior again, don't you? They line the streets of this great city. They throw their garments down. They cut branches and lay them down. And they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means something like, Lord, save us now. They're crying out for a Savior. Even those palm branches, which we could could, uh, overlook because they're not mentioned in Mark's Gospel. They're mentioned in John's Gospel. But it still tells us something important. Palm branches were waved at the entrance of the Maccabees. Palm branches became a national symbol of independence and victory. It was even on the coinage of its day. And here they are, waving these branches. My friends, you can see in this picture great beauty of a people who line the streets and see one riding a donkey's colt, see palm branches waving, 
See the people crying out, calling out for the Davidic king. Was it not David who was promised by God an heir? An heir who would sit on David's throne forever and evermore? The people look and see this one approaching, coming down from the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley. He's riding a donkey's colt. And the people are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The religious leaders certainly read it that way, didn't they? We read in another account that it says, Look, you're accomplishing nothing. The whole world's chasing after him. And for those scholars who would say that it's not clear that the cries of Hosanna were directed toward Jesus. Well, the leaders thought that they were because they told Jesus to make them stop. But Jesus said if they stopped, even the stones would have to cry out in praise. My friends, when we think about this passage, how can we miss this historic arrival? The people didn't miss it. They knew there was a great event happening in their very presence. Yet not all is right with this picture. All of the recognition and the cheering and the awe is like that which the Lord has encountered over and over again, all along. It has the form of something great. It has the form of something faithful, and yet it is empty. Now, none of this takes away from the historic or the messianic significance of what is happening as Christ enters Jerusalem. But don't be fooled by the crowds. Jesus wasn't. He wasn't fooled. You know, as children, we grow up making the palm leaves in children's church and we wave them and it's almost like we're proud to identify with that people and I don't, I don't think we should be. They were celebrating the entrance of a king. They just were missing the king that was before them. You see, the crowd was receiving another Jesus. Another Jesus. They were welcoming a conquering king. That's the reason for the palm branches. That's the reason for the cries of Hosanna. These were not cries of a people looking for spiritual deliverance from the slavery of sin and death. They were looking for physical and political deliverance from a greater enemy in their mind, Rome. They didn't want Jesus. They wanted David. And this is made clear over and over again in the text. They were bringing in their mind an earthly king into their great city. They wanted a different Jesus. A different Jesus. And we can see this clearly because even though the leaders think today in the text that the people are following after him, look just a few days later. This huge crowd that's coming with him must assuredly been a part of the city a few days later when it calls out, what are we to do with with Jesus? And the crowd calls out, crucify him, crucify him. Why would they do that? What would change between Palm Sunday and the day where they cry out for his death? Well, my friends, the answer is Jesus revealed much about himself and his ministry. He revealed that he was not an insurrectionist. He revealed that his primary goal was not to throw off Rome. What's worse, he told them to pay their taxes. That seems like a small thing to us. I mean, I don't think we love paying taxes, but 
they felt like it legitimized Roman rule. Tax collectors were hated for their being part of the system of taxation from Rome. And here Jesus was playing the shield for the tax system, telling people, pay your taxes. No, they expected to see Jesus marshal troops. Call out that the appointed hour had come. The Messiah had appeared. Raise up the army. God is ready to throw off the enemy. My friends, they weren't getting the Jesus that they were hoping to get. They weren't getting the Messiah they were hoping to get. They weren't getting the type of deliverance they were longing for. My friends, Ronald Kernigan, a, a great New Testament scholar who wrote a great commentary on Mark, uh, says in it that, in a way, he set up a great paradox in this text, hasn't he? The Savior that came versus the Savior that they actually wanted. That paradox is at the heart of what is going on as Christ enters Jerusalem and what will continue to go on through this final week. My friends, isn't it seen in their choice? The Passover tradition of letting one prisoner go? Pilate tells them, you can choose who you want freed. You can have the Son of the Father who is called Jesus who calls himself the Christ. Or you can have the other son of the father. That's what Barabbas means. Bar, son of, Abbas, the father. You can have whichever one you want. There's a tradition. You can have one freed. This preacher who preaches to follow God's will and way, or this insurrectionist, this murderer who is killed. And what does the crowd cry out? Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Even Pilate can't believe it. He says, Jesus has done nothing to deserve death when they cry out for his crucifixion. And all of this just a few days after his entrance, the entrance of Jesus, the King of Israel, the entrance of the true King. That's why John MacArthur calls the events of Palm Sunday the false coronation of the true king. You see, the thing that was false wasn't the king. Jesus was king. More glorious, more worthy of worship, more worthy of praise than they could ever possibly imagine. He's just not the one they wanted. And so when they welcomed him in and, and proclaimed him king and did all those messianic fulfillments, it wasn't genuine in, for them. Although he was the real deal, their worship wasn't real. Their coronation wasn't real. The people were wanting to receive a completely different Jesus. One much more like Barabbas than like the Jesus we read about in Scripture. Have you thought about that much? The idea of seeking another Jesus? That's what the crowd was doing. They were seeking another Jesus. Now, if you think that's a strange idea, then I would point you to another place in the New Testament that we ought to read. In fact, let's turn there now. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And as you're turning there, I want to just mention something very quickly. If you know this history, Paul has had a difficult time. 
He had dedicated himself so much to Corinth and the Corinthian church, and yet it seemed that it was always nothing but trouble. And here Paul is having trouble with a group of preachers that he calls the super apostles. The super apostles. These were men who were by their own name. If Paul is an apostle, they're greater than he is. If Paul is an apostle, they must be super apostles. They speak better, they preach better, they minister better, they're better liked, and nobody persecutes them. Well, that's interesting. And their message was effective. And Paul is concerned for the believers in Corinth that they might be corrupted by this. That these peddlers of another gospel might actually be effective. Now I tell you, we know what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, that there is another gospel, right? If any, man, if any man comes to you preaching another gospel, which is no gospel at all, call them anathema. But did you know there's another Jesus who's no Jesus at all? Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to the one husband, that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by its craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Brothers and sisters, I hope you're hearing this this morning. There is another Jesus that can be preached. When is another Jesus preached? Whenever the true Jesus isn't preached. When a sorry substitute is put in his place. And yet, my friends, we need to recognize that there's a serious warning here for us. It isn't just the first century that needs to worry about other Jesuses. I fear we live in an age with many other Jesuses today. You can turn on the television set and you can see the preaching of another Jesus. You can see the parallel between what we're talking about today and what we see today. In the days of Jesus, there was another Jesus that was desired who would not save them from sin and death, but would save them from Rome. And today you can turn on the television set and you can see another Jesus, not one who saves from sin and death, but one who saves from poverty and sickness. If you have faith, and if you'll send in the check that they desire you to send. And yet, my friend, do we recognize that people can miss the true Jesus because they set their eyes on a false Jesus, another Jesus. My friends, we need to recognize there is a danger here. This crowd saw and seemed to proclaim Jesus as king, and yet a few days later that testimony was proven false because he didn't accomplish or do what they wanted. I wonder how many people today proclaim Christ so long as he's what? they want Him to be. So long as He'll accomplish what they want accomplished. 
My friends, we need to recognize this as a warning to us. We need to read the Scripture. Recognize who Christ is. How do we recognize Him? He reveals Himself to us in His Word. You don't need to take some television preacher's word for it. I tell you all the time when I preach to you, I pray that you're like the Bereans and you are looking your Bibles to see if what I'm preaching is accurate. I'm a human being. Human beings may not even mean mean to mislead you and might on accident mislead you. But what we see in 2 Corinthians is something far worse. And my friends, I think we see it in our world today. False teachers who have their own motives and their own glory in mind. When we are called to seek only to glorify Jesus Christ. To glorify our God and Father and the Holy Spirit. To bring glory to God. That is what we are called to do. So in closing this morning, I pray that we will recognize our need to not miss Jesus. To not just say His name, oh, I believe in Jesus. I I believe in some Jesus out there. No, it matters very much that you know who Jesus is. That you believe in the Jesus who came perfect, sinless. Who came and lived a perfect life. Yes, tempted and tried as we are, and yet without sin. That because of His perfection, He could go to Calvary's cross and give His life as an atonement for all who believe. And that, my friends, He could rise victorious because death cannot hold Him. How are we to recognize the false Jesus? Well, there's a a whole lot to be said there and maybe a whole sermon just for that. But let me say briefly that there's a couple of places that are consistently aired in. Number one is glory. They air in the matter of glory. Who is it all about? Who is the gospel about? People err when they make it about themselves. We are called to bring glory to God. I've been speaking about this for quite some time. It's not just the Westminster Confession, or Catechism, I should say, but our own that asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The glory is not for us, it's for Him. And no matter how many churches that we can see on the internet that have phony glory clouds descending from the top of their sanctuaries, it doesn't bring glory to us. We are called to bring glory to God. And so any Christ that makes the glorification about you, you know you're on the wrong path. Now, praise God. As we study the Scriptures, we learn that God's plan is to glorify all those in Christ Jesus, and we are thankful for that. But my friends, as we read the Scriptures of what it's going to look like when we're on the other side of of the veil, it's not that we glorify ourselves, it's glorifying God then. We've just been looking in Thessalonians that Paul wants to see that church succeed. Grow. Be a crown. Not that Paul might glory in that crown, but that he might present it to Christ. 
Didn't we just read in 2 Corinthians that Paul's desire there was to present the Corinthian church, the bride, to the groom? So they err in glory, not knowing, first of all, whom to glory, and not knowing what glory is about. The second place they err is in righteousness. We see this all the time. They either underplay God's righteousness. God's righteousness is so low that you can reach up on a ladder and grab it for yourself. Work enough, climb enough rungs, and you can reach the righteousness of God on your own. That's not what we proclaim. There is such a gulf between the holiness of God and our sinfulness that only God Himself could bridge it. Not by works of man, only by the grace of God. And as Paul tells us in Romans, that is the essence of the gospel, how God could forgive sinners and yet He Himself remained perfectly righteous. Only God could do this. And so again, they err by lowering the glory of God to make it within reach of man. But they also do it in another way that I think go hand in hand together. If you lower the righteousness of God, then sin's more excusable. If God is not perfectly holy and perfectly righteous, then maybe He can be in the presence of sin. And so you begin to see a hedging, if you will, of the bets. You begin to see a softening towards sin. You begin to see, a well, maybe that one's not so bad. Maybe we can make do with that one. Or maybe it was only those old-timey people that cared about those sorts of things. My friends, God is a God of perfect righteousness. He cannot abide sin. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He cannot pardon sin just willy-nilly. That's what that verse was referring to a moment ago. The gospel is how God can justify fallen sinners and remain Himself perfectly just. So if you're following a Jesus that you're hearing preached as being about your best life, about your glory, if you're following a Jesus who's about how can I give you the health and wealth you desire, if you're following a Jesus whose only interest is that your life is maximized to everything you desire and want. If you're following a Jesus who's presented as being so unrighteous as you can work enough to reach heaven. If you're following a Jesus that isn't bothered by sin, then my friends, you are serving and trusting in another Jesus not the one of Scripture. Two millennia ago, many were claiming the name of Jesus while rejecting the very mission on which He came, rejecting Him as He truly was, who He truly is. And I fear today, brothers and sisters, that we see lots of people that say, I'm a Christian, I follow Christ, but they reject everything He stands for and would recognize it if they would just simply pick up the Bible and read it. My friends, I challenge you this morning. Do you know this Jesus presented in the Scriptures? Do you know the Jesus perfectly holy, left the the perfection of heaven 
took on a tent of flesh, came into this world, lived a sinless life, and bled and died that His people could have life evermore. Brothers and sisters, as we start this Holy Week, I would ask you, do you know that Jesus Christ? 